investors all around the world are worried about three things moving higher. That three-headed monster is higher inflation, higher interest rates, and maybe even higher taxes. Today, we'll look at what this scary proposition has meant for stocks and the economy over the course of economic history. And we'll talk about and try to help figure out what we can do about it. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. The talk of the economic town is the fear of this new scary three-headed monster facing investors in the economy, stock market economy. And that three-headed monster is pretty simple. Higher inflation, higher interest rates, and then maybe even higher taxes. Put all those three together and you've got some scary ingredients in the economic soup. And what I want to go through today here on the Retire Sooner podcast is to, as we are all figuring out and trying to make sure that we are prepared for all the rocks or stones that are thrown at us as investors, all the speed bumps, what do we do to combat that as investors, whether we're trying to get to retirement or once we're in retirement? And these are very real items that we need to consider. Uh, What's interesting is that when it comes to combating inflation, investing in equities has kind of, to some extent, always been one of the answers. We want to own assets that inflate over time. But as we are coming out of a closed economy to a very much more open economy, the numbers on inflation really, as here we are at kind of middle of the year in 2021, continue to get to be pretty scary numbers. In fact, you it's, it is very recently we've seen highest PPI number on record. PPI is the producer price index that measures things or items and materials that go into the things that we buy. By the way, also, let's always be careful when we read these articles, because if you go back and read the fine print later on in articles that typically say the most or record of all time, for instance, if you look at a June headline for PPI, 6.6% largest on record in 12-month period. Well, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has only measured this version of CPI since 2010. So it's only been a, called an 11-year period. So when you think of all time, you think 100 years, when reality, very often, these headlines are only going back a decade or two. But at the same time, We're coming into a new economic environment where we have a shortage of labor and a massive demand for nearly everything. And that's why we've seen, again, as of mid-year, clothing sales up 200%, food and beverage up 70%, oil seeds, which I had to look that up. Oil seeds? I thought it had something to do with some technology for getting oil out of the ground. Really, oil seeds are just what you might think, which are olive oil and sunflower oil and canola oil, all the things that we press to make oil up about 20% in the last reading. Metals up 6.5%. Grains up 26%. Check your cereal box prices. Veal and beef up 10%. So we've seen more recently as we're headed out of and really fully reopening the United States economy, 
we're we're measuring against a period of time, a year, let's say ago, where there was a giant hole in inflation because the economy was kind of shut down. So we're seeing these big scary numbers, and it's I think investors are rightly somewhat worried about this. And I just wanted to go through historically how markets in the economy have fared when it's faced all of these issues, including inflation, including higher interest rates, and including higher taxes, which are certainly on the radar coming out of Washington. When that happens, and if that happens, we don't know for sure, but it's certainly on investors' minds. And I want to give some context historically. It always makes me feel so much better to go back over 50 years or 30 years, 50 years, 100 years and look at economic and market history and say, hey, when we had that problem back then, how did things do? How did markets do? And history in markets often repeats itself over and over and over again. And it's, of course, never an exact repeat, but there's certainly a sense that history doesn't repeat itself, but it might rhyme or be similar is something that I've seen play out over and over and over again. So we went back in economic history and I want to go through some of these very real issues and see how things fared. I also want to give you a solution to this and I'll start with this is that not all stocks are created equal in rising interest rate environments. We have been in a period of time, really for the last several years, that growth, growth, growth stocks have been kind of the winners of the day. And partially that's because interest rates have been close to, or if not at zero, close to zero. And that's a period of time where that environment favors growth-oriented stocks that have profits that may manifest way, way out in the future. If you're investing in, let's say, more dividend-oriented companies that are more established and already have profits, they may not be growing dramatically, but they're present-day current profits, they're less impacted when interest rates move higher. So part of the solution, of course, in investing around or protecting our purchasing power in inflationary periods of time is, of course, investing in stocks. But today I want to explain why certain categories of stocks fare better when interest rates or inflation moves higher. So let's start with personal taxes, specifically capital gains. And we're going to go back in history, all the way back to the 1960s, and find periods of time where the rate of capital gains. So again, we pay personal income tax, we pay capital gains tax. Those are the two, to some extent, primary taxes we pay as individuals. Not talking about corporations here, we're talking about individuals. And we'll start with capital gain taxes and look at any periods of time when those rates went either up or down. And what's interesting, if you look back at all these instances, let's call it about a dozen periods of time when the capital gain rate changed, If you look at it in the context of how the market fared or the S&P 500, capital gain rate changes seem completely uncorrelated with what happens in the market, meaning that whether the capital gain rate went up or down, it didn't seem to really impact markets. Now, I think investors are worried, hey, if capital gain rates go up, is it going to hurt stocks? So I picked a couple periods of time here. When I go back to 2013, capital gain taxes the rate went up and it didn't hurt stocks. Markets were actually up during that period of time. Actually up a lot. In 2013, markets were up close to 30%. So higher rates didn't 
hurt stocks. Capital gains went down in 1997 and 1980. And guess what? Stocks were up as well. But again, if you scatter plot the last more than dozen changes in the capital gain tax rate, it's just uncorrelated with the stock market. There's also an interesting point that I wanted to bring up about capital gains taxes in general. Every time Washington wants to raise tax rates, they're trying to do so to collect more tax. What's interesting that we've seen historically that once we get to a certain point when it comes to capital gains taxes, the, the realization of those taxes, so people making the decision to actually sell a stock or sell real estate, if rates are at, let's call it 10%, there's a very low barrier to saying, hey, I'll go ahead and sell and pay a little bit of tax. Once rates get really high, let's call it 50 or 60%, then you start to think twice. Well, if I sell this, it'd be great, but then I've got to pay 50% of it in capital gains tax. So we've seen over time that past a certain point, which is about 28% on the capital gain rate, once you get above that or, or rates are above that, realizations start to really slow down and the government actually ends up collecting less tax money. For instance, in 1986, we saw a big jump at the capital gains rate. It went from 20% to 28%. Right before that, when people knew it was coming, we saw a spike in realizations, meaning people went out and said, hey, I better get this under the wire and sell stock now if I'm going to ever sell it or sell this real estate now before rates go up. So there's this huge spike in realizations. Then it was a huge slowdown in capital gain realizations once rates were already higher. So I think it's just an interesting point that Washington seems to know, because I've read this now multiple times, that that 28% level on capital gains is, to some extent, an interesting inflection point. Next up, let's talk about personal taxes, i.e. overall income taxes and then specialty tax hikes. If you go back over economic history and you look at income tax increases or overall general big tax increases from the 1940s to today, there would be 12 of these instances if we include what we're working on today. So technically, there's 11 periods of time. What's interesting is that markets did not seem to do badly at all after these tax bills or higher taxes were signed into law. If we look at Six months prior to these bills signed into law, meaning that there's lots of talk, that Congress is working on a tax bill, markets were a little tepid. About a third of the time, markets were down in the six months prior, leading up to a new tax bill being signed into law, and averaged about 5.4%. So that's lower than your annual rate of return for stocks. What's interesting is that six months after these new tax bills were signed into law, 91% of the time, market was up. 91% of the time. On average, 15.5%. I think a big part of that is that investors are very nervous about coming tax hikes. And once they know exactly what they're going to look like, they breathe a sigh of relief. They say, oh, it's no longer uncertain. I know what we're facing. And the economy and the market has a way of pressing on regardless and continuing to be okay even when taxes go up. Now, I'd certainly, at least personally, I'd rather tax rates stay low or not go any higher. That's just my personal opinion. In fact, I cringe at the thought of higher taxes, but really I'm looking at this from a market perspective. And if you go back over history, markets seem to be okay even when taxes go up. 
What happens when corporate taxes go up? So we've just talked about taxes that you and I pay as individuals. Now, what about companies? If you go back to the 1940s, there's five instances where we've seen real U.S. corporate tax increases. What's interesting about these periods of time is that, number one, markets seem to do just fine. I looked at the 1949 to 51 period where corporate taxes went from 38% to 51%. It's a big jump. But over that three-year period, 49, 15, 51, stocks were actually up 41%. So stocks did very well during that period of time, even though companies had to pay a bigger chunk out of their profits. Maybe the reason markets or the stock market still does okay, even though corporate taxes go up, which you would think of the opposite is true as higher taxes, lower overall profits. It may be because historically what happens is that CFOs and CEOs sit back and say, well, if our taxes are going to go up, we're just going to raise prices and pass it through to the consumer. So what we do see is that higher corporate taxes lead to higher overall inflation, not necessarily a difficult stock market. What about the economy and corporate tax rates? Again, Washington, D.C. continues to mull over higher personal taxes and higher corporate taxes. Well, I went back and looked at a study from the Economic Policy Institute. This was data from the Bureau of Economic Analysis that tried to figure out a relationship between corporate tax rates and economic growth, all the way back to 1948 through 2010. What it shows is that there's very little It's actually a slightly positive correlation between corporate tax rates and U.S. economic output or GDP, meaning that as corporate taxes have gone up or down over time, it has little impact on economic growth. If anything, you you see a slightly positive relationship between the two, meaning that there's a slight increase in GDP as corporate taxes rise. Again, my preference would be to not see any taxes go higher at all, personal or corporate. But at least if it does happen, economic history tells us that it's not necessarily all that bad for stocks or the economy. Now, what about interest rates? As interest rates rise, does that start to hurt stocks? Now, we have a massive amount of data points here because there's been lots of interest rate movements over the last 50-some years. And if you plot that against what happens with the stock market, you'll see pretty clearly that stocks actually fare pretty well when interest rates are rising up to an important inflection point. Once interest rates get to about the 4.5% range, and again, we are far below that. As I sit here and do this podcast, we're in the 1.5% range on the 10-year treasury for an interest rate. That means that there's a long way to go to get to 4.5%. But over the course of economic history, all the way back to the 1960s until today, as rates move higher, so do stocks. Until we get to about 4.5% for overall interest rates, and then it starts to take a chunk out of stock performance. If you look at this even more recently, from February of 2009 to today, the inflection point's a little bit lower. Meaning that, again, stocks rise when interest rates go from one to one and a half to two to two and a half, but start to slide 
once rates get into the 3.6% range. Again, ultra-high interest rates logically slow down everything. In fact, the Federal Reserve uses interest rates and interest rate raises to pump the brakes on the economy. Higher rates mean everything's a little more expensive. Higher mortgage rates, higher car loan rates, higher credit card rates. That tends to slow things down economically. But it doesn't seem to have an impact until rates move decidedly through the 35 to 4.5% range. What about inflation? Let's talk about the third head of this three-headed monster. Inflation in general, what does that do to stocks? Well, it's pretty clear, again, if you go all the way back to the 1950s, that the markets actually like some inflation. Moderate inflation, even up to the 4 to 5% range, doesn't have a material impact on stocks. So if you look at the 0% to 4% range, Stock multiples are in the sweet spot. And I say stock multiples, meaning that price-to-earning ratios are highest in the 0 to 4% range, meaning that investors are paying up for stocks. It's not until we get to the 5 and 6, 7, 8% inflation range that stock market or price-to-earnings ratios or multiples really start to collapse, which is bad for stocks. So like we see with interest rates, and I think we could call inflation, rates of inflation and interest rates are, they're not the same, but I would call them economic cousins. But again, like we see with interest rates, once we get to that 4 to 5% range on inflation, stocks do fine up to that point, and then higher inflation does start to have a negative impact. Now, let's talk about where we end up and how this three-headed monster might actually solve itself. As much talk as there's been about inflation, there's also been lots of talk with the Federal Reserve and economists and market strategists debating over this word transitory, meaning that if we do have inflation, which we're already seeing, or now that we do have inflation, really how long does it last? Is it transitory? Well, transitory is a pretty broad word. Transitory could mean two to three months or transitory could mean a year to two years. If you look back in economic history, and it's the year 2050, and we look back to today, 2021 and 2022, and inflation only spiked for about a year or a year and a half, well, that looked pretty transitory. It spiked for a little while, and then it went back to a more modest range of 1% to 2%. And even though there's this great debate on Wall Street and the Federal Reserve and bank CEOs and hedge fund managers... Some saying we're still worried about deflation, some worried about heavy inflation. Where we usually end up when there's this big divide of opinion is somewhere in the middle. And I think the same thing happens here. Because the cure for higher interest rates and higher inflation ends up being higher interest rates and higher inflation. In this concept that I call demand destruction, and I think it's really easy to see this through the lens of what we pay at the pump for gas. If gasoline is $3 a gallon, we get used to that and we're fine to pay $3 a gallon and we'll fill up our tank as soon as it's empty. But if you get a price shock and all of a sudden now it's $5 per gallon, what happens? We start really rethinking how we're getting around. So we use less of the very item that's now becoming super expensive. Thus decreasing the demand for that item thus putting downward pressure on that price. Same thing for cereal. 
if you look at one of the big inflation numbers that hit me as a dad of four little kids was the grain price. There was a 26% jump in grain over the past year. Well, if a box of cereal goes from $4 all the way to 7 or $8, I'm going to think twice about what the kids eat for breakfast. And they might figure out some other meal options. Maybe eggs haven't gone up in price and that becomes the breakfast of choice. So if cereal prices go through the roof because grain prices have gone through the roof, as Americans, we're going to probably buy less cereal. So all of a sudden, demand goes down. This concept of demand destruction. And I think the same thing happens with interest rates and inflation. If we end up with highly inflated prices in certain areas, then consumers start to shy away from those prices. Demand comes down. Companies have to readjust pricing. If interest rates go through the roof, then they by nature slow everything down because everything gets more expensive. Mortgages get more expensive. Credit card gets more expensive. Auto loans get more expensive. In turn, we buy less of an expensive house or maybe we don't even buy a house. And then the demand comes down and then again, prices adjust accordingly. So part of what I do believe makes this a relatively transitory story, meaning that it doesn't last for the next 10 years. I think we see these higher inflation rates for the next maybe year, maybe it's two years. But to some extent, we get back to economic equilibrium because the cure for higher prices in most areas of the economy or the economic aquarium that we live in, well, is higher prices. And I like to think of the economy as kind of an aquarium. Anything that happens to one side of the, the big fish tank will eventually make its way to the other side. Drop a small pebble in a big aquarium, it'll slowly have ripples throughout and everything adjusts. We had much more than a pebble drop in this economic aquarium because of the shutdowns. The shutdowns were like throwing a boulder or throwing a big rock into an aquarium. Water splashed out the sides, the fish all threw to one side. And it doesn't take a few minutes to get to equilibrium. It takes a long time, meaning that it's probably not a one or two month fix. It's probably more like a 12 to 18 month fix. And I think that's what we're facing here. In the meantime, we've lived in an environment where interest rates have moved lower and lower and lower for the better part of 35 years. Inflation continuing to move lower. Interest rates continuing to move lower. We've essentially gone from 15% interest rates in the early 1980s to essentially zero for the last several years. Due to the financial crisis, rates started to go back up, then COVID hit, back to zero. Well, where are they headed? Well, they're probably headed higher. And even though they may not head dramatically higher, the question is, where do we want to invest? Well, the answer, typically, to combat against inflation is to own assets that inflate along with inflation, meaning that if you're worried about the cost of hamburgers going up, what do you want to do? Well, you probably want to own a hamburger company in the publicly traded markets because that company can raise prices on hamburgers. And if you're an owner of that company, you're likely also seeing that same benefit. But historically, what does well in inflationary periods? Well, equities or stocks, precious metals, and we've talked about here on the podcast before, REITs or real estate investment trusts. But within the stock category, there is an important distinction. And that distinction has to do with the difference between 
growth, growth, growth companies and value companies. In a period of time, and this all goes back to valuing companies on their cash flow or what much of Wall Street looks at as a discounted cash flow model, really low interest rates or the zero interest rate environment that we live in favors companies that are growth, growth, growth that typically are reinvesting all their profits and their profits aren't until way out in the future. And if a company is going to be worth, let's say, a billion dollars or have a billion dollars in cash flow in 15 years from now, if interest rates are zero, then the present value of that billion dollars is still a billion dollars. But if interest rates are in the 2 and 3 and 4% range, that far into the future economic value is worth a lot less in today's dollars. So these high-growth companies that aren't planning on making a real profit for 10 or 15 or 20 years, they're favored in a zero-rate environment. Whereas companies that have current cash flow, let's say more mature companies that have current profits, those companies and their present value of future cash flows doesn't get materially hurt or anywhere close to the high growth companies when interest rates rise. So in an environment where interest rates are headed higher, what faces the most headwind? Well, if we use the example of awesome technology company incorporated versus boring widget company incorporated, you can see the impact of interest rates rising. So awesome tech company Inc. ends up with lots of profits, but not until year 20. If interest rates go from zero to 1%, then those future profits in today's dollars are worth 27% less. 2% rise in interest rates over 20 years, that value is discounted by about 50%. And if interest rates go from zero to 5%, then those profits way out in the future, 20 years, are worth dramatically less. On the other hand, the boring widget company is making profits today. And in the same example of a discount cash flow model versus Awesome Tech Inc., boring widget company doesn't have their present value of their future profits discounted all that much. If interest rates rise 1%, their current value may only be down 8 or 9%. Up 2% in interest rates, their present value may only drop by 10 or 15%. Again, compared to a company with profits way out in the future, you could see current value of a growth, growth, growth company down by 30 40 50%. And that's why you'll hear that in a rising interest rate environment, more established companies that have current profits tend to fare much better. Now, I'm always biased, in full disclosure, towards value-oriented companies, dividend-oriented type companies, companies that are able to grow their dividend. But if, in fact, interest rates do rise over time, and I think all the predictions of ultra-high interest rates, ultra-high inflation, ultra-high taxes, I think none of that comes quite to the worrisome fruition that the media makes it out to be we still will likely have higher interest rates over the next five and 10 years. Still likely have higher inflation over the next five and 10 years than we did over the last 10. 
So one of my answers for combating inflation and interest rates and higher taxes and summing up all the economic data that we've talked about today, continuing to invest in dividend-paying companies. To me, that's the cure to combat this three-headed monster. Hey, y'all. This is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This podcast is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. It is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment or financial planning considerations. Please refer to the full disclosure in the podcast description for any additional information information.